0: plushcare.com slash hey
2: everyone it's pacific and this is out of place just a quick announcement before we get into the show i want to shine a spotlight on meddling with monsters an incredible tabletop rpg monster of the week podcast that you're going to love If you've been enjoying Season 2 of Out of Place, you're already very familiar with the works of Dana Creaseman, her music, her amazing sound design, and storytelling capabilities. And now you can listen to Dana's epic Monster of the Week campaign in Meddling with Monsters. There's already a ton of episodes out now, and you can binge through all of them. The characters are great, the chemistry between the crew is great, and the whole show is phenomenal, and you're going to love it. So check out Meddling with Monsters wherever you listen to podcasts. And now, enjoy this week's episode of Out of Place.
3: When I was young, very young, five or six, I learned that people get old, get sick, and die. Everyone learned it at some point, of course. It was an uncle. I didn't see him very often, mostly once a year at Christmas. I'd learned later it was a congenital heart condition. That was the first time I had to have it explained to me that it is forever, that people go to a big black hole from which nothing will ever return. That it happens to everyone. And later I started to understand that death isn't just something that happens. It defines our entire existence. Everything we do, we do because one day we will die. It's strange, I suppose, that what we fear most is the one thing we're certain is going to happen. We run away from it all the time making things safer, watching our health, pouring most of our resources into ways to avoid it for as long as possible, but it always happens. The Extant team does the same thing. The project wants to avoid the death of the perfect timeline it wants to create, even though whatever they do, it will die eventually. The Extant team finds ways the world can end so the project can avoid them, no different from a person eking out every year of life expectancy. In the full knowledge, it'll run out in the end. Uh, This is what happens when I'm left to my own devices. I think too much. Ever since I was that five or six-year-old, I have a tendency to wonder what the point is. If we're all only going to die anyway. Of course, the answer is we find our own point, but it's easy to lose sight of that when my job involves immersing myself in death on a global scale. At least I tell myself I'm not part of the field team. They have to actually go to those worlds where everyone's dead. I just have to sift through the data they bring back. The last mission was to one of those versions of Earth we call a Marie Celeste, or Ghost Town. It's one where there doesn't seem to be anything wrong, except nobody's there. The cities are all in place, the Aral Sea's gone, big chunks of the Amazon rainforest have been cut down so people were around until at least the post-industrial age, but the airwaves are silent, the streetlights are dark, the power stations are cold. Even a killer pandemic like an airborne Ebola or similar candidate tends to leave a few bands of survivors broadcasting into the ether in the hope someone else is around to hear them. this world was completely quiet. The team was prepped and the capsule was sent through the dimensional breach. The target location was the default New York area, which was met with mixed emotions by Private Sandich, who admitted that while it was nice to go back home, he was starting to get bored of seeing all the ways his hometown could be destroyed. The capsule made one of the most inaccurate entrances into the target timeline yet. It was 400 meters south of Long Island and 40 meters in the air. Fortunately, the capsule's flotation devices functioned, and the team were able to use it as a makeshift lifeboat to make their way to shore. They were highly critical of the inadequacies of the paddles supplied. They reached land at East Atlantic Beach, as Private Sandich explained they were not technically in New York City yet. He also shared anecdotes about holidaying in the area as a child until Sergeant Brand ordered him to stop. The first observations they made were that residences and businesses were empty but had not been abandoned in a hurry. Most were almost empty of furniture. Businesses had been wound down and closed with no stock or portable equipment remaining. If the area had been evacuated, it had not been done in an emergency. There was no damage. The team forced entry to a house on the seafront and found no bodies or belongings inside, except for a washing machine and oven range in the kitchen and a bed with no mattress upstairs. Cupboards and closets were empty. The car in the garage was a Chevrolet Malibu, with the fuel and oil drained. The team continued on mission and moved further into the city to see if the pattern was the same. They were unable to find transport and so had to do this on foot. It was a three-hour hike along city streets to reach Queens, during which the team observed the same signs of a massive scale and evidently highly organized abandonment. There were few signs of buildings being degraded, suggesting this had happened recently. Subway stations had been sealed with concrete. Many multi-story buildings had their ground floor windows boarded up. Cars were completely absent from the streets. The team paused to eat and rest in the Laurelton area of Queens, having not encountered any signs of human life. Sergeant Brand elected to head towards Manhattan, where the United Nations headquarters and New York City Hall have high potential for providing useful intelligence. Again, this would be a lengthy walk, but in the continued absence of bicycles or usable motor vehicles, the team had no other choice. The lack of running water was noted as an issue, since both water and power had been shut down and the team did not have much drinking water with them. Private Quintero speculated the city must have been abandoned because of some threat the residents could see coming. He suggested an environmental hazard, such as a leak of chemicals underground. Poulter countered that the rest of the world had seemed just as abandoned, according to the orbital data, so there was nowhere to evacuate to. Sandwich asked if the rapture might have happened, at which point Sergeant Brand ordered no further speculation to take place. The team reached the shore of the East River, where they could observe the United Nations headquarters. They immediately noted significant changes to the building from the one-in-hour timeline. The main block of the complex was topped with an array of antennas and dishes, along with exterior ducting suggesting extreme environmental control. Beside the UN complex was a building with an industrial appearance, built of concrete and steel with tall chimneys exceeding the main UN building in height. This was definitely not present in our timeline. The team intended to cross to Manhattan, but the Queen's Midtown Tunnel had been blocked with a concrete plug, so they had to detour to the nearest bridge instead. They investigated the industrial building first. Like many other buildings they passed, it was sealed. The main doors opened onto the street and were large enough to admit a sizable truck. The team forced open a smaller side door and moved through an empty office area onto the main floor of the building. This was an enormous space, with several massive steel chambers with doors facing into the room, served by a system of tracks and trolleys. Poulter took several photographs aided by his drone's light amplification camera as the room was dark. The team opened one of the steel chambers and saw a space inside heavily discolored with heat staining and layers of ash. Inside was a grill and several nozzles the team identified as flame jets. The building's chimneys were directly connected to these chambers. They then examined the trolley system and saw that each was the same size as an operating table or mortuary slab. From this, and the fact the chambers were evidently incinerators, they concluded the building was a crematorium. Its design strongly suggested it was for disposing of human bodies, on a vast, industrial scale. The historical parallels of this discovery were obvious. However, the city so far had shown no sign of upheaval or conflict, or of the prison or concentration camp facilities that would be needed for the crematorium to be disposing of the victims of genocide. Furthermore, the location on Manhattan, on some of the most valuable real estate in the world and in a place where its function would be obvious to millions of New Yorkers, argued against the building being part of a purge against a segment of society. The building had no river access and so could only be reached by road, hardly a suitable situation for incinerating the thousands of bodies the building had evidently been designed to accommodate. The team moved on to the UN headquarters. It was surely not accidental the crematorium was right next to the U.N. building. Sandich began to speculate the U.N. had begun exterminating opposition to a new world government, but the other members of the team were quick to dissuade him from expressing this. The U.N. complex closely resembled that in our timeline, with the Secretariat building, General Assembly building, Dag Hammarskjöld library, and the Conference Center all being present. While entering the complex perimeter, Private Quintero noted that one of the flags flying outside the headquarters was unusual. In our timeline, these are the flags of the member nations, two observer states, and the UN itself. There was an extra one beside the UN flag that did not correspond to any of our timeline's nations or bodies. It was a black circle and a horizontal black line over an infinity symbol on a light blue field. The team found a board with directions to various parts of the complex and identified one anomalous location, signposted as the Embassy for Disembodied Persons. Upon reaching this location, which was a separate building on the complex grounds, they saw the aforementioned anomalous flag flying outside. The building was a single-storey glass and chrome structure affording a view of the interior, which was bare except for a curved reception desk. The main doors were sealed in keeping with the rest of the city. The team was about to move on when Private Sandish noticed movement overhead. The team observed a flying object resembling a large quad-rotor drone approaching them from the top of the Secretariat building, descending towards them rapidly. Sergeant Brand ordered them to find cover and adopt a defensive posture, but not to fire unless fired upon. The team scattered among the sculptures of the gardens around the embassy. Warrant Officer Poulter was able to film the encounter, his footage starting as the drone descended to head height.
0: It doesn't look like it has any guns. Don't mean shit. Stay down.
3: It's landing!
0: Is it gonna blow? Okay, well it hasn't blown up. Yes, it's not a hostile. Keep your distance, Sandic. check it out. I ain't checking out shit, Sandy. Jesus fucking Christ. I'm going. It carrying anything? Nah, it's got like fucking cameras? Guess. What the fuck am I looking
1: for here? Good afternoon. Um. Okay. The Embassy for Disembodied Persons is currently closed. As this is likely to continue indefinitely, this is an information unit designed to inform visitors of the Embassy's purpose and history.
0: Are there any controls? Is there a screen? Yeah, there's a little screen here. It says uh, history, status, services, reporting, and careers. history
1: the embassy for disembodied persons was founded by a united nations resolution after the first disembodied person shireen gibson came to exist in 2018 her consciousness was successfully modeled by a multinational team of computer scientists based here at the un headquarters the physical version of Miss Gibson passed away four months later from terminal illness, but she continued to live as a disembodied person in the servers built at the headquarters for this purpose. As a person without a physical form and not residing in a physical nation, the status of disembodied person was created to represent her unique nature. The United Nations headquarters, being located on extraterritorial land not belonging to any one nation, was uniquely suited as a location for both the servers housing disembodied persons, and for the embassy through which they can maintain diplomatic relations with the physical world. The embassy building was gifted to the United Nations by the government of Australia, where Miss Gibson's physical form had been a citizen.
0: What? Jesus. They uploaded a whole human mind. They actually did it. Care to enlighten us, Poulter? This woman, Gibson. They completely replicated her mind inside a computer. A whole thinking human mind. It's just theory in our world. This must be the point of divergence. They worked out how to upload a consciousness completely. Is that all the history? Uh, no. There's a bunch of other stuff here, too. Let me see.
1: The Embassy for Disembodied Persons has branches in all the member states of the United Nations and Observer States.
0: The fuck did you do with everybody? It's not an AI, Sandeck. It can't answer questions, it's just a bunch of recordings. Uh, let's see.
1: Following the worldwide adoption of consciousness uploading technology, a decision was made after extensive debate in both national and international referendums to enable universal uploading. The first billion-strong consciousness arc was sent off-world to minimize the chances of natural disaster damaging the hosting server. Humanity took its first steps as a non-Earth-bound species. In less than a decade, enough consciousness arcs had been established to accommodate the entire population.
0: So what the fuck did you assholes build the incinerators for? I can't hear you, dumbass. They're much more of this poulter. Just info about the embassy, passports and stuff. Everything's shut down. I hate to agree with Private Sandic, but I want to know where everybody is, too. Sounds like they're all in space. The bodies, then. The people left behind. I guess the big-ass crematorium down the road had
2: something to do with it, Sarge. Can we take this with us?
0: No. There ain't enough space in the capsule, and the regs won't let me leave Sandic behind to make room. Is there a a hard drive or something? Maybe. I'll see if I can pry something out of it. (sighs) Make it quick. We're halfway through the mission time, and we've got a long
1: walk back.
4: Hello, Earth. This is Shireen Gibson, currently passing across the orbit of Pluto on the Consciousness Arc Ascension. Soon, we will be beyond communications range. So this will be the last time I can talk to you. Uh, I will miss your world, but I will not mourn it. Our world is far from perfect. But it is ours, a place that we have made for ourselves so completely different from the one I once knew that I I cannot describe it. And while I also look back with fondness on the life I once had, I am also blessed that I now live free of disease and aging. If we avoid the statistically tiny chance of encountering danger in interstellar space, we even live free of death. It is a life completely different to yours. I might even say it would be alien to you. At first, I held on to a version of the shape I had when I had a physical form, but I have abandoned that long ago. To contact you, I had to synthesize this voice, an artificial version of the one I no longer use. It's not just a different way to live. It is a wonderful one world and our bodies are no longer a constraint instead they are the material from which we can make whatever we want with every iteration of myself i move beyond what a human being is i would say we are not human at all anymore i understand why that might be frightening but the truth is it is the most wonderful freedom if you can hear this and you have yet to upload yourself. Please, give yourself this chance. Leave your human frailties and failings behind. Be a part of the advancement of all of us. It might seem brutal to dispose of your physical form, but once you are free of it, only nostalgia will make it seem anything but a straitjacket. Perhaps we will find each other in space and share what we have become. From the union of our ideas will grow even more forms of life, things I cannot imagine now. The future is infinite, and with time, we shall be too. I hope you can feel what I feel. I hope you can become the full expression of that wonderful person locked inside your body. I love you, my dear friends. And I pray I will one day see you, see what you have become again.
3: The team made decent time returning across the city to the capsule location, and again pausing once to rest. The march across the city was quiet, since the implications of what the information drone had told them was confusing and troubling. They returned to our timeline without incident, but again the capsule was off target, arriving more than two hours and almost a kilometre off the projected breach. They were again 40 metres in the air, resulting in another rough landing. The technical support officers took custody of the hard drive retrieved by Warrant Officer Poulter, and the team began the debriefing process. No one could tell how the crematoria related to the mass uploading of human consciousnesses into a digital form. I have an idea, though. To avoid the philosophical chaos of a digital person existing at the same time as the physical one, the United Nations decided they couldn't. The physical person was euthanized at the moment of upload. That way, there was only one consciousness. A continuous, single existence with none of the tangle of who counts as a person and who doesn't. The crematoria were for getting rid of the surplus meat and bone that was no longer a human. I can't imagine what the debates in the United Nations were like, trying to wrangle through the issue of an artificial human, or the mixture of relief and horror when they came up with the solution. Eventually, everyone was uploaded and every body was turned to ash. I assumed the Manhattan crematorium was just for the first waves of people who were uploaded to the servers on the UNHQ's extraterritorial ground. There must be others too, rolled out when people of every nation started clamoring to be freed from the constraints of a physical body. Maybe the whole population was desperate to leave Earth and inhabit their new digital world. Maybe some had to be forced... Perhaps a few held out on that world, hidden away from the cities that were meticulously mothballed as the population scheduled our transference into a judicial form. If the drone's information was accurate, the first successful upload of a human mind was that of a terminally ill woman. She, the, the physical she, that is, died shortly afterwards. It wasn't a coincidence that the first candidate for uploading was someone with a very short life expectancy. The more I think about a person's mind being completely replicated inside a computer, the more troubling it feels. Let's imagine we could do it today. Once you upload someone, are they a separate person? Does the electronic version get a vote? If you modify their code, is that assault? If you delete them, is it murder? How does society cope with the fact that there are now two of the same person, who have the same personality, the same memories, but start... Diverging from the moment their digital version comes into existence. Imagine if the uploaded person is married, is the digital version married to the same person? Things get exponentially thornier when you can make a person from scratch or copy or change existing ones. Are they people with rights and responsibilities too? If some are and some aren't, who decides? I don't know the answer to any of those questions and it's maddening. The potential for uploading a human mind is immense. It could be a whole new stage of human existence, but the problems it comes with don't have answers. How can a world function if half its citizens aren't people at all, but information? The easy way is to only have one version surviving. The first time it was done, that problem solved itself. Shireen Gibson had a few months of existing alongside her digital version, then she died. But what about the rest? It seems like the whole population was uploaded and launched into space where the vagaries of Earth's climate and geography couldn't endanger them. Those people weren't all terminally ill at the time. I think I know what happened. Extant's purpose is to explore timelines where human civilization has ended. In this case, I don't know if they found one or not. Certainly civilization as we knew it was gone. Earth was empty, its history had reached a full stop. But humanity still existed. So completely changed, I don't know if you can say it's part of the same thing. Director Beckman and the project board will have to sort out what it all means. I can move on and forget about it, although I doubt I will. Things like this tend to stick in my head. I've got a lot better at letting go of things, but days like this are really pushing it. When the project first put me in extant, I thought at least I'd know what the end of the world meant. It seems like with everything else, I don't know as much as I thought.
2: Out of Place was written and created by Ben Counter. Sound design and music was done by Dana Creasman. Our editor was Daisy McNamara, and I'm your producer, Pacific S. Obadiah. Andrew was Ben Counter. Brandt was Damon Alums. Poulter was Russ Moore. Quintero was Luis Bermudez. Sandich was Lexi Edwards. Shireen was Rhiannon Luchal. And Drone was Steph Varens.